Everyone faces challenges every single day. Some are chosen and bring us joy. Some are given to us and bring struggle or pain. Whether the diagnosis of an illness, the news of a friend's death, the loss of a job, or a bike accident, we may be asked to step up to face issues that demand courage and perseverance. Hurt is just one of the many aspects of full lives. Each week on this show, ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope, Dr. Joanne Dahl helps us understand how we can use acceptance and commitment therapy to learn to accept what we cannot change and move forward into a valued life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joanne Dahl. Welcome to ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope. One thing we all share as parents is the emotional pain of watching your child in pain. Something inside us happens as parents when we see our children suffer that is so excruciating and despite the fact that we know better, we likely get overwhelmed and would do anything to stop our child's suffering. In fact, if we could choose, we probably would prefer to carry all our children's pain throughout life so that they never needed to suffer. But at the same time, we know that it's through this process of, of suffering, the pain of life, that we grow as individuals. So how would a person turn out who never suffered and who had just an easy time throughout life? There are a lot of kids who hurt. Chronic pain among children is pretty common. About 20 to 35% of children and adolescents around the world suffer from chronic pain. The most common pain conditions are uh, muscle pain, headaches, and stomach pain. And it's a great cost emotionally and socially, as well as the, the result of associated disability. And, of course, economically, for the parents with direct and indirect costs from health care utilization, loss of wages due to time off for care for children. So a child's chronic pain undermines school performance and social and emotional health and erodes finances and really can devastate a family. Today you're going to get a chance to talk to an expert on this subject, Dr. Kevin Vowles. Kevin is a clinical psychologist who specializes in the rehabilitation of adults, uh, young adults, teenagers with chronic health conditions. His work with young people is often highlighted, highlighted um, so that parents are, who are often suffering significantly. So, Kevin, you are an um, associate professor at the University of Mexico, New Mexico, and I want to welcome you. Thanks, Joanne. Yeah, I'm an assistant professor here at New Mexico at the moment, but uh, associate soon, I hope. <laughs> Kevin, I know that you just got back from uh, living seven years in England and working with chronic pain um, the whole time. So what got you interested? Chronic pain is a very difficult... I know that you are a very loving dad yourself of a, a little seven-year-old girl. How, what got you interested in children who hurt? Well, the, my interest in the area really came through... Uh, the adult work that we've done where every now and again we would get referrals for really young people, uh, first adolescents, but then even as young as eight, who were suffering from significant chronic pain. 
and at the the time we made a decision that we really needed to do something to help and over over the time of doing this clinical work it became really clear that the kids were suffering a lot but the parents were suffering tremendous amounts of pain and suffering and oftentimes in them trying to be good parents and do good parenting behaviors they were getting themselves into a bit of muddle by actually making their child potentially more distressed or more disabled mm-hmm. so you mean because the because of what I was talking about is how hard it is it's it's like multiplied hard uh, when you're yeah. Your child is suffering. Why, why, do, why do you think that is? Well, I, I can. I guess I can speak from personal experience, and then we can talk about clinical and science work. Um, mm. Parenting is one of the hardest things I've ever done. Mm. Uh, you have to run. You have to balance on this knife edge of protection and trying to do things for your child. But as they get older, you have to step back and and let them uh, have a bit of independence so that they succeed or fail on their own, and you can't protect them from that. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a lot of times with the parents of the young people who we've worked with, uh, it's, it's very hard for them to take that step back and let their sick child, who they feel they need to protect and care for, mm-hmm. to let that child spread their wings, so to speak, and have the opportunity to fall down every now and again and hurt themselves you know yeah that is that is hard to stand by and watch it's hard and the and this is where the the especially as as young people are transitioning to adolescence or young adulthood and are making that transition towards more independence uh, this is where chronic illness can sometimes really put a stop on that where that that trajectory towards full adult independence can start to really decline back into a more dependent young child kind of relationship between the parent and the young person. Kevin, sometimes I wonder about that. Um, I mean, there it seems like windows in during uh, uh, development that things need to happen. I mean, when yes. you're, for example, going through puberty and uh, the social things and contact with the opposite sex or the you know, sure. and all and all these things and. Sometimes I wonder if that's not more important that they get to do those things, even though they are suffering. It's. I think that you're right. There are these these vague developmental milestones along the way, like the first time you lie to your parents about going out with your friends, or the first time, as you say, you come into contact with a member of the opposite sex. And these experiences are pretty darn formative, you know, in terms of, of allowing full independence. And and if the child is sick and the parent is doing good parenting behavior, this is the problem. It looks like good parenting behavior of protection and advocating for, then some of those milestones aren't met. And in some of the, the older, younger adults that we see, if you will, who are maybe in their 20s or something like that, if they've never had the chance to make these developmental milestones, it's very difficult for them to, to, to make that big transition towards living on their own, paying their own bills, buying their own food, cooking their own food, all of mm-hmm. these things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's what we all want as parents, is that, that our children are become independent and can stand on their own two feet. It's the ultimate goal, right? It's mm-hmm. the ultimate mm-hmm. goal, absolutely. So, Kevin, how... How common is uh, chronic pain with children? Well, of the, the the epidemiological studies that are out there, it seems that chronic pain is very common mm-hmm. in young people. Uh, a bit more common in, in adolescent uh, girls uh, versus adolescent boys, but it's really only a minority 
that show up at health clinics and that consume a lot of the healthcare resources that are out there. It's a similar story in adults with chronic pain. There's somewhere between a quarter and half of the adult population has some kind of significant pain at some point in their life, but it's really only about 8 to 10 percent that consume approximately 75 percent of the resources that are out mm -hmm. there uh, in these studies. And I think it's probably the same story uh, in, in the, the young, the child and adolescent literature, although the data aren't, the data aren't, the area is not as well researched as it is in adults. Mm -hmm. and, and when we were preparing for this, you asked me about the prevalence of parents suffering for youngsters uh, who yeah. have chronic pain. And I remember uh, thinking about that question quite hard and, the, and ultimately deciding that I have no idea what the prevalence is of parents who are suffering because of their young person's suffering. Yeah. If I had to hazard a guess, I'd say it's 100%. <laughs> Yeah. Or somewhere yeah. around there. Yeah. Well, Kevin, you know, we had a program about um, uh, caretakers of people who are dying, and the uh, and the guy, the name Joe Oliver, who yes. did that program. He um, he talked about that they often are uh, suffering, you know, as as much as the person actually at the end of life, uh, because it's uh, it's very very difficult. Uh, and I'm wondering if if it's not the same thing of for parents that. That probably is hundred percent because it's just so such a difficult thing to do. So hard. I think you're right. I think it. I think the the principles that are there that are governing parent suffering are probably about the same as if as the caregivers of people who are losing a loved one, or even of caregivers who are taking care of like older adults who are uh, who have dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that. Mm -hmm. Kevin, so how would uh, ACT approach this problem? Well, it's a great question, and, and if we're specifically talking about how to parent a young person who is suffering, part of of the focus on act of act would be on on getting the parent to realize whether or not their efforts are helping the young person move towards independence, whatever independence they can achieve, or whether or not those efforts are actually hampering that move towards independence. Mm -hmm. And as a alluded to earlier, uh, oftentimes you see, rather than a, an adolescent or a young person moving towards greater adulthood, you see them moving back towards childhood. Mm -hmm. They might, in extreme cases, their parents might be cooking all the food for them or bringing the food to their room or even pushing. We saw a young man at one point whose mother was pushing him around in a wheelchair all of the time when there was no reason for him to be in that wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And the, the difficulty here is that the, the behaviors look helpful from the parents but can actually contribute to greater distress in the long term. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the other big part of this is many times when parents are taking care of, of sick youngsters, uh, they are giving up very important aspects of their own lives too. Mm -hmm. They are giving up recreational activities, marriages or, relationship, or close inter intimate relationships are taking oftentimes taking a tremendous hit. And, We've even seen, you know, marriages fall apart because of this. And is that quite common that marriages do fall apart? I think at least quite common. In, this is my clinical experience here. I don't know that I have a lot of research evidence to back this up, but that relationships take a tremendous hit, uh, mm -hmm. and the quality of that relationship really declines, uh, and in some cases that the relationship will fall apart. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think that the 
use a stereotypical example, it's oftentimes the mothers who stop working and who devote their themselves full-time to the care of the children, where the fathers try and stay at work. Uh, and the parents uh, are not communicating very well. There's some financial stress that might occur. Uh, the uh, fathers might be, and again, this is stereotypical. Sometimes it's mothers, but most of the time fathers are working. The fathers might not have a great understanding of, of what's happening with the child, and so they might be at odds with the mother in terms of their management of the young person. Maybe mm -hmm. father is pushing along, just get the youngster to do it. Mother's being more protective. Uh, and I think, importantly, um, the parents aren't having much time to spend together to engage in enjoyable activities together. Mm -hmm. uh, and the move towards oftentimes marriage satisfaction increases once kids re reach late adolescence. Mm -hmm. And the theory behind that is that the kids aren't around as much and the parents can hang out more together and have fun. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that really suffers, where the parents might not see each other at all. They might feel like they're not managing the child in the same way, so they're at odds there. And they're not just doing fun things with one another. So if so, relating to ACT, would this be relating to the values then that um, um, if, if children are taking up a lot of time that the parents are actually not in, engaged in valued actions themselves? Absolutely. That the frequency of values-based action, that is, is directed at the parent is at an insufficient level. Mm -hmm. Just go ahead, Joanne. Now, I was thinking, too, about uh, the, the process of acceptance. I, I know that that's something you've thought a lot about. Can, can you explain how, what acceptance, what kind of, what that plays for role in with pain? You know, we, we talk about that acceptance issue a lot is just willingness to have discomfort so in our, our adults with pain we might talk about willingness to have pain mm -hmm. uh, for our parents we talk about willingness to have a child who is in pain and how it feels to be pretty helpless when it comes to taking that pain away which is what all parents want to do and whether or not some increased willingness to let that child suffer when they're suffering allows any freedom in activity later on, particularly based on values. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so acceptance, if, if, if try to understand, acceptance is uh, a, a difficult thing to grasp. It, are you saying, so there might be like two parts of this, if um, the parent would have to accept or make room for actually the their own suffering and watching their yes. child. That's exactly right. And the, and the child needs to do, how, how does the child? Yeah, so there, I, this, is a, this is the difficulty. Anytime you deal with two people who are suffering who are in a relationship, that it's a, it's a two-part equation uh, for the caregiver. It is willingness or acceptance of their own suffering when watching someone they love suffer. And from the perspective of treating the person in pain, uh, it is about uh, some enhanced willingness to have pain and all of this in the service of values-based activity. And I think it's probably an important point to just make sure is clear that uh, what isn't being advocated here is acceptance of all pain. Uh, pain mm -hmm. that is controllable should be eliminated, um, but it's acceptance of that pain that we can't control or when control efforts lead to a, a life that is of poorer quality. Mm -hmm. I know you've heard this before too, but when people talk about values and why they're important, it's often that 
it is often said that they give dignity to the suffering. They give it purpose. Mm -hmm. And when there's purpose to suffering, usually quality of life overall is better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little about that, Kevin. Uh, I know that there's been some, you know, this this program really is for for lay people, but I I think it's interesting with the, for example, the uh, research about when you give meaning to pain that we actually can tolerate it more. Could you explain that? Sure. I, uh, there, yeah, so I'm trying to make this not about research studies, uh, but there was a great study done up in Wisconsin of undergraduates who were brought in the laboratory and who uh, had acute pain induced by dipping their hand in an ice water bath. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, they were th- the the participants were assigned to one of three conditions. One was just a control condition where nothing was expected to happen. Uh, The second was more a willingness condition where the experimenters asked people to enhance their willingness to stay in contact with this painful stimulus. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the the third group was that willingness part, but they also added a a values component uh, where uh, for these undergrads, when they came into the laboratory, they were just asked what mattered to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the experimenters tried to incorporate what mattered to them into this rationale. The example in the paper is that if an undergrad came in and said their family mattered to them, the experimenters would say, imagine that remaining in contact with this ice water bath would allow you to somehow help a family member who was maybe uh, out in a lake drowning. They were, they, you staying in contact with this painful stimulus would mm-hmm. put you in a position to provide some care for this person who is important to you. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the results were astonishing. Uh, they looked at tolerance times uh, predominantly. So how long pe- these undergrads kept their hands in an ice water bath? Mm-hmm. And for this, the willingness condition, there was about a doubling of tolerance time relative to the control condition. And that's a fairly well-established experimental finding. But when this values piece was added, there was about a quadrupling of mm. the tolerance time. And and the the fascinating thing about that experiment to me is that that values manipulation was very weak, uh, that there was no drowning family member, uh, there was no ice, you know, there was no frozen lake. It, were, it was undergraduates sitting in a laboratory with their hand in an ice water bath mm-hmm. who were also told prior to the experiment, you can take your hand out whenever you want. Mm-hmm. And that that's, there's a lot of clinical principles that I think are there. Even though this was undergrads, these weren't people who were suffering from pain, that as human beings, we are likely to be more willing to remain in contact with things that we don't like if we understand a purpose, the purpose behind it, or if we are willing to suffer for a purpose. Kevin, could that mean, you know, in, in um, popular language, uh, we often create meanings for things. Like, for example, when someone dies, we might say... Uh, uh, there might be a meaning with that. So I, I was thinking also of Viktor Frankl in his work. Yeah. Uh, if so, would would it be enough that we just make up something? That um... that's a that's a that's a it's a good question, right? Um, and I don't know that we have the answers to that question yet. My gut feel would be it can be made up, but it needs to be made up quite carefully. Uh, mm-hmm. It can't be selected at random, for example. No. Uh, that. Uh, it, it to look at what matters to one requires a bit of reflection and, and a bit of soul searching, for lack of a better term, about the things that are worth suffering for. 
Mm-hmm. It's pretty simple when we're, when we're talking about most parents with kids who are suffering. As a parent, are you willing to take a step back from them, hold that suffering that you're having close to you, uh, and give your child some freedom to experiment and to see whether or not they can go for independence? Mm-hmm. Uh, most parents, upon a little bit of reflection, will say, of course, mm-hmm. because that's what parenting is about. Those first steps from when they were a child, mm-hmm. uh, that was about letting go to let the kid fall down if they're going to fall down. But also there was a purpose there, which was them learning to walk in that mm-hmm. simple in that simple case. Did you say, Kevin, it, it's almost like that you were lifting yourself up into a, a higher value um, which is actually another perspective, like thinking what is important here might be lifting up so that so that the small things, the other things come in perspective, that maybe it's not so important if the, if the child falls in comparison to independence as a higher. Yeah, or it's a, um, it's a, it's taking a longer term view about these things as well, right? That the, mm-hmm. is the longer term objective worth the shorter term potential for suffering mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you, I and we could talk if we wanted to which I know you, we shouldn't we could talk about why from a scientific or behavior analytic perspective why that values work is important because it brings these it brings these things that seem so remote it talking about them enhances their ability to be in the present and if they're in the present they might have a better ability to influence behavior mm-hmm is that too scientific? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. Uh, could you say that more simply? I don't know if I can say it more simply. That so many times when when people are confronted with suffering, it feels like that's the reality. That the reality is just suffering, and so human beings respond to suffering by trying to minimize it, right? And mm-hmm. that it just seems so present, like there's no other option. Bringing in what matters potentially allows different responses to occur, that one can remain in contact with pain or suffering because uh, there is an understanding there, uh, or, uh, yeah, there's an understanding there that remaining in contact with the suffering is for a greater purpose. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes, too, when uh, I've worked with patients that um, sometimes when an accident has happened, uh, a, a person could say, well, you know, maybe this was this was uh, luck because it, it's helped me to see that I was stressing too much or that I was, you sure. know, and I always admired that where the people could find a meaning in, in something that seems, you know, to be quite at random if they fall down the stairs, it seems to be pretty random, but or a car accident, but they could find a meaning in it that actually helped them. There, it's it, that this is the stuff of Hollywood movies, right? Where some wake-up call happens and it allows people to gain some perspective. Mm-hmm. I think clinically, what would be great if we were able to do, it would be great if we were able to establish some kind of clinical approach that allows that perspective uh, without making tremendous suffering a necessary component of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, as you said in. Victor Frankl's work, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, there is a lot of perspective in the latter half of that book on mm-hmm. what life is about that was the result of a tremendous amount of suffering. And clinically, what we try and do is, what we'd like to do is minimize that suffering as much as we can and allow the perspective taking, right? Mm-hmm. Even when we know in our heart of hearts we might not be able to prevent all that suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Kevin, tell us, do you have uh, examples of people that you have, a person that you have worked with? And yeah. I was, gone? I was just, as I was, as I was speaking, I was thinking about whether or not a, a, an example would make sense. Uh, and I, again, I know in the lead up to this, you asked me to think about an example with a parent uh, and a child. And then, and the one that actually sprung to mind was a, an example where as a clinician, I felt like a parent for some young adults that we had coming in and, and felt the, the push and pull of, of providing care and, and, and protecting them versus giving them some freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that an R I want to tell? Mm, that's a good. Okay. Uh, and just uh, it was a, a couple of young ladies in their mid twenties uh, who we had in on a, a, a rehabilitation program, and the purpose of our program for pain is to get people functioning in a way that life is good. Okay, mm-hmm. to be doing age appropriate activities, uh, and uh, these three young ladies were doing pretty well in treatment. Uh, they were a bit cautious. They were a bit anxious. Uh, one of them in particular came in with a tremendous history of disability. She'd been hospitalized for two and a half years uh, in an older adults uh, unit because the National Health Service in the UK didn't really know what else to do with this 25-year-old. And if you imagine the setting, 25-year-old in a in a basically a stroke and dementia ward, mm. um, it was exactly like your imagination would mm. would predict. Uh, she was in a back room, dark, you know, it was darkened, the shades were drawn, and in the day room were a number of older adults who were quiet or who were who were who were struggling to be independent. Just not an age appropriate place for her to be. And this had an effect on her mood, as you would imagine. And and the well meaning healthcare providers who were taking care of her had her on doses of pain medications that really made us nervous that mm. they were actually doing her more harm than good. Yeah. So we brought her onto the program, and she did tremendously well at cutting down her medications, at starting to, to walk again. She'd been wheelchair-bound for about two years, and then came onto this group program with these other young ladies. And I remember one day walking in, about halfway through the program, and um, these 25-year-olds were a bit hungover because mm-hmm. they'd been out at the pub the night before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also let me know that they had been exchanging numbers, phone numbers with members of the opposite sex while at the pub. Mm-hmm. Uh, and had asked us, uh, is it okay if we invite some of these guys over to the flats that we're staying in while we're here in your treatment program? Mm-hmm. And, and I, there was there were a number of different feelings that occurred there. One, on a sort of a parental side, was the need to protect these young people who uh, were doing things that frankly made me a little bit nervous. Yeah. Uh, they were yeah. staying out a bit late drinking, they were exchanging phone numbers, uh, and they were potentially putting themselves at risk. Uh-huh. You know, and then upon a bit of reflection, uh, I realized these were quite age-appropriate activities mm-hmm. for young women in their twenties to be staying out a bit too late, to be showing up a bit too late to an early morning treatment session, yeah. to perhaps be a bit more hungover and to be interested in in members of the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I guess I guess I got to fess up for the story. What we eventually told them is the boys weren't allowed in the, in the flats, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, that just that illustrated for me uh, some of the things that must be going on for parents mm-hmm. when they have a sick young person. Whereas mm-hmm. if we uh, if we took a step back and let them do these age appropriate activities, uh, they were at risk of getting hurt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other hand, if we didn't step back, if we stepped in to protect them, we were potentially not allowing them an opportunity to do some very important things from a developmental perspective. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, Kevin, we had uh, Christopher Martel on the program last week, and he was talking about that uh, general approach of getting into what he called approach rather than avoid. So going towards your life rather than against your life. And it seems like what you're saying is that uh, the natural flow of things is going towards those things of that that types of activities. And and if if, um, something is stopping you, then uh, maybe uh, something much more serious is is at risk here of developing rather than just a a short-term at some level, it, it ideally, we would just like uh, the people who we treat to, to be aware of, of various options for their behavior. One is, to use Chris Martel's words, one is to avoid it and try and minimize it. And, and that's a viable option, always. That's not the bad choice, uh, but it's not the only choice. Mm-hmm. When in difficult circumstances, there are other response options available. One is approach directly. One is approach, but not quite directly, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and ideally, by the conclusion of an intervention, what we would like is for the people who we treat to be making an informed decision there based on what they want. So for a person with pain to spend the day in bed, that is oftentimes about avoidance. But if it is made with full knowledge of the impact and with full willingness of that impact, you know, mm-hmm. that I'm going to spend the day in bed today, but it's because my daughter is getting married tomorrow, as mm-hmm. an example. Mm-hmm. That is a perfectly appropriate values-based choice, even when on the surface spending a day in bed looks like an inappropriate thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the, the key there, to some extent, is less about the behavior that occurs and more about the purpose of the behavior. Mm-hmm. Is it about approach, again, to use Chris Martel's words, in the long term, approach towards a valued life? Mm-hmm. Or is it about avoidance of a valued life in the long term? Mm-hmm. And, and allow, putting people in a position to be able to make those kinds of decisions is one of the primary purposes of treatment. Kevin, isn't that difficult? To, because we're, aren't we masters in fooling ourselves when it comes to, <laughs> uh, to know, understand what avoidance means? So the, you asked earlier about, about how an ACT approach would do this, and I think there, there are three principal things we'd look out for or try and train. You know, are people so overwhelmed by, what, by their thoughts or their emotions that they just don't see any other response options? And in those kinds of cases, what we're trying to do clinically is just get people to, to be aware of, of the, the feeling of being overwhelmed to slow down and to take a look at whether or not other response options are available. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the second two areas have to do with, is there a lack of clarity in terms of what's important? And mm-hmm. if there is that lack of clarity, we want to try and get some clarity there. And the third here is, are people so, so is the past or the future so dominant over people's behavior that they really don't have much perspective on what's happening in the here and now? Mm-hmm. And when, when those sorts of things are going on, we try and just train what it's like to be attending to the here and now. Mm-hmm. And, and, if you, in, in my opinion, if you get those three things going, uh, oftentimes you will get people in a, in a position to do that difficult work, mm-hmm. to be aware of when, when emotions have gone awry and are trying to run the show, to have a little bit of perspective on that, and to take a good hard look at, at the responses that are available, one of which is to run away, and as I said before, others of which are to, to do other things, to move towards or to move slightly towards. And go ahead. 
no, go ahead. Finish. Okay. The, con- the concluding thought here uh, on on that topic is is also to try and work into treatment uh, a feeling for people that it's okay to fail, uh, and it is okay to be so overwhelmed by what's going on that a poor decision is made. Mm-hmm. You know, and that the making of a poor decision does not equate to a failure of treatment. Uh, the noticing of a, of a poor decision puts one in the exact position we want them to be in, which is the opportunity to decide what to do next. We've gotten to the end of our program, Kevin. Okay. <laughs> could, what advice could you give to the listeners who, who um, maybe have children who are hurting or uh, friends? Sure. What advice could you give us? The... You're not going to die on me, are you? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, good. Um, that's the first piece of advice. Yeah. <laughs> um, that it's hard to give advice in small snip, in small snippets and make it sound sincere. But this is sincere advice. Um, parents who have children who are suffering um, are well advised to slow down a little bit, to look at the long-term effects of their of their parenting behaviors and to make a judgment of whether or not these behaviors are likely to help their young person in the long term or not. And that's different than the short term. Um, And all of the parents who we've ever seen, uh, we have asked to make sure that they are doing things in their own life that bring meaning, that are outside of parenting. That parenting role can become so dominant that it doesn't leave a lot of room for people who have artistic influences or who like to read or who like to be independent or work or produce or all of these other things to take. So, so to these parents, I would say, take some time out to do the things that matter to you personally that have nothing to do with parenting. Thank you so much, Kevin, for being on the program today. Um, I think that advice that Kevin gave us, uh, could relate to all of us as parents, regardless if if the kids, if your kids are hurting or not. And you've been listening to Dr. Kevin Vowles. Um, Kevin is an assistant professor at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Uh, Kevin is a clinical psychologist uh, specializing in the rehabilitation of adults, young adults, and teenagers with chronic health conditions. You can read more about Kevin by clicking on his name on this week's episode of ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Joanne, please see her website at joannedahl.com or click on the host website button in front of you on the webtalkradio.net page. You may also see her books, The Art of Science of Valuing in Psychotherapy, Living Beyond Pain, Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy to Ease Chronic Pain, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Chronic Pain, Values in Action, and Epilepsy, a Behavior Medicine Approach to Assessment and Treatment in Children. All of these are found easily by clicking the cover or going to Amazon.com. We hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope.